Welcome to Diabetic, the podcast where a T1D artist and T1D expert come together to bake some bread, and then we break bread with smart and interesting people as we talk through the human and health and technology. I'm Stephen Horrocks, a PhD and expert in experiences with diabetes and devices. I'm Melissa Horrocks. I am a creator, baker, maker of all things, and I am a type 1 diabetic. And we are back finally with <laughs> season one, episode three. A long break. <laughs> long break. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Life. Uh, a lot of life. Uh, but we have uh, episode three here, everything bagel, pumpkin bread, long overdue discussion because we made this like ages ago. And <laughs> <laughs> diabetes and its treatments, a primer. Yeah. So join us. This will be a fun one. And uh, our guest today is us because we're <laughs> smart and interesting people, too. <laughs> we keep telling ourselves that. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so let's talk about this bread that we made back in October. November? Uh, November. November. It was November. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago, but not that long. <laughs> I mean, pumpkin bread. Is kind of all the time, right? And it sure. wasn't, was it flavored? No. Okay, no, it was, it was just, just like an olive oil bread, but we made it look like a pumpkin. It's shaped like a pumpkin. Really cute. Um, <laughs> we ran into some snags a little bit uh, with the twine. I guess we can get to that in yeah, a bit. Yeah, for Do you sure. want to give us the deets of the yeah, bread? Absolutely. Um, so this, uh, we refer to this as everything bagel pumpkin bread, uh, partly because we didn't know exactly how to like, what to call this thing. But it is a pretty basic straight dough. So um, we're talking about bread flour, not not any like whole wheat flour and stuff mixed in, uh, salt, yeast, water, and some olive oil. And that's the entire kind of contents of the dough. So no pumpkin in there. <laughs> um, but the thing that set it apart, especially in terms of the like flavor and the bake, was uh, the everything bagel seasoning. So this stuff's so good. Fantastic. <laughs> it's so good. We've used it on a number of things. Uh, ironically, never bagels because we <laughs> haven't made bagels before. And maybe we'll have to do that. Another um, episode. Yeah, absolutely. We'll talk bagels at some point. I but, think we have made bagels before. I feel like ages ago, but they weren't good. I mean, <laughs> this is before your we made, intro into like actual pretzels, bread making. And that's oh. uh, it's close on the process, kind of. <laughs> I don't think we've ever actually made bagels. Well, that seems so like a travesty. <laughs> I know. Um, so, but the seasoning is uh, re like super salty and savory. And so uh, it really, uh, frankly, it's like the star of the show here. And it has, you know, uh, like onion flecks. I'll mm -hmm. call them flecks. <laughs> uh, things like garlic salt or garlic powder. But um, importantly, it also has sesame seeds. And the seeds, uh, I think it also has poppy seeds in this one too. But, yeah, there's a um, lot of stuff in there. <laughs> the seeds toast in there while it's baking. And so the flavor gets really intense. And uh, so the... There were a couple of things here that I think were the trick to this bread working and it being so like tasty. For one thing, you got to get this stuff to stick on the outside somehow. Um, if you've ever made bread and you have shaped up like a loaf of bread, the outside, you uh, if we were to just like sprinkle the stuff on there, it would just fall right off. 
and I've done that yeah, before. Kind of if you ever decorate a cookie and try and put sprinkles on minutes later and they're not going to stick. They just <laughs> it's fly a everywhere. dry surface. So yeah, exactly. Need so, a wet surface. So there are a number of ways to do that. Uh, our favorite way and the way that worked super well for this is to get uh, a towel. This is actually a trick I learned from Jack Sturgis. <laughs> Go check out Bake with Jack because he's awesome. Um, <laughs> but to get a, a clean kitchen towel and uh, get it damp and lay it flat. And then after you shape up this round, because we just made a ball, um, after you shape it up, roll it around on that wet paper, uh, not paper towel, regular <laughs> kitchen towel, roll it around on there. So the whole thing is just a little bit damp and it gets kind of tacky. Um, and then you can just toss the seasoning in a bowl and put the put the loaf in there. <laughs> And sw- like swash it around. I love when Steve talks about, uh, <laughs> oh, I just make a ball of dough. <laughs> there are like very specific ways. I mean, okay, you can just make it a ball and it'll turn sure. out fine. But there are also these like techniques that he just whips out. He's like, oh, just make a ball. And so I make a ball and then it's like not good. (laughs) (laughs) And then he just like does all these maneuvers really fast and it looks amazing. So there are a lot of amazing YouTube videos and things online that Steve's constantly watching, nerding out on that show some really cool techniques. So um, Steve can link some of those kind of... You yeah, know, we can put some of those in the Some show of notes. his favorite YouTubers that <laughs> for sure we have um, on repeat over here. YouTube and Instagram because there are a number of people who uh, kind of do one or the other. And yeah, so shaping can be a big deal, um, especially with like really finicky doughs. It can be a pretty big deal. Uh, for the most part, if it's more or less shaped the way that you want it to be, though, it's going to work, especially with something like this because of the twine. So this is what we haven't talked about. Mm. <laughs> uh, so we shaped these in a ball, but that doesn't look like a pumpkin, right? So uh, what we did was get some kitchen twine and you might've seen this around and some of the, uh, these got really popular the last, this past fall. Um, Cause the fall before that, there were a handful of people that were doing it and they were like, Ooh, cool. <laughs> um, but you get some kitchen twine. Uh, <laughs> stop. <laughs> you get some kitchen twine, cut them at the, a length that will go around the loaf uh, plus some, plus a few inches. And uh, I think we did three of those per mini loaf because these were smaller, but Mm -hmm. um, you can do four if you have a big loaf and uh, lay them on top of each other, crisscross in a radial pattern, like in a circle and uh, plop that dough on top of there with the top side down. That way, you can then bring the edges opposite each other or the strings opposite each other together and tie it on the top. And it kind of pulls it all back up into a tighter ball mm-hmm. so that when you then bake it and it puffs, mm-hmm. that holds, but it puffs outward in between them. And so you get Pumpkin. this like pumpkin-y. <laughs> yeah, you get these little ribs on there. And it's like, it, <laughs> it's really cool. Um, yeah. Really very cool. We made the mistake of not wetting the twine. Yes. Um, so and I think oil might be oil, maybe. Yeah. So <laughs> we uh, <sighs> were giving these to people, and um, we noticed. I think did I notice? Yes, you did. <laughs> I noticed that there was like 
little hairs on them. And I was like, what are these little white hairs? They're like stuck in the dough and it's the fibers of the twine had come off. And so I spent like an hour. <laughs> oh, it was absurd. With two, like uh, tweezers pulling out little tiny fibers. Anyway, put some <laughs> oil on your twine before you tie it up. Yep. <laughs> so, put a little I mean, oil it's in not going to hurt you, but it's not going to feel good yeah. having little hairs. Little fuzzies. Your, ew, gross. On your bread. So toss it. Yeah. Like put the oil <laughs> in a bowl and put the, your twine in there. And then you can kind of like squeegee them <laughs> with your finger. Stop with the laughing. You're killing me. I can't me. help it. <laughs> oh. Uh, Steve's a very animated are... talker, so when he's Ugh. describing all these things, he's using his hands and like <laughs> that doesn't very... translate <laughs> in an audio format. So we'll need to add some videos of him talking. Sorry, folks. <laughs> they just get me laughing, which is probably <laughs> not cool either. So uh, the nice thing about this is uh, kind of. Regardless of how like over uh, overcooked or undercooked you like your bread, because I really like a loaf that is cooked pretty dark. I like the flavor <laughs> that comes from that kind of brown. We argue about this a lot. We have a lot. I of like it's burnt. <laughs> she says it's burnt, and I said brown is not burnt. Brown is flavor. <laughs> uh, but the nice thing about this is that these loaves are basically encapsulated in this seasoning with all these seeds and onion and garlic and all these other things in there. Uh, and so those toast and you can't really see the surface of the loaf anyway. So at whatever, to whatever point you like your bread baked, mm -hmm. it's going to look, well, it's going to look and taste delicious. Yeah. So special tip, slice that up, toast it and butter it. Oh my gosh. Mm. It was so good. Toasted. <laughs> so good out of this world kind of tasted like a bagel so give it a bagel. shot yeah it does it tastes like a bagel minus the boil so but it has the nice you know toasty flavor yeah so give them a try and uh hopefully we will be able to make some bread more recent for our next episode <laughs> here welcome back uh so the point of this episode is to kind of go over some of the terms and things about diabetes that we talk about a lot that you may not have a concept for. Yeah. yeah um, we're around this all the time. And so the way we talk about things sometimes, uh, <laughs> you know, there's kind of an in-group language thing going on, some jargon that uh, we may kind of miss. And, explaining. you know, it's interesting. <laughs> there's a lot of things that Steve will talk about. You know, I've had diabetes for 20 five plus years of my life and is that right okay yeah 25 i have to rethink uh wow that's wild i think we've talked about that but anyway so there are always things to learn um there are things that i definitely don't know because you just know what surrounds you right so um there's a lot of things about the history and all the stuff that steve studied that i'm like what <laughs> Okay, yeah, I guess I sort of knew that, but didn't know it. Um, yeah. So, and likewise, anyway. I don't live with diabetes myself, and so even though I am in close proximity with you, and 
uh, experiencing a lot of those things along with you. I don't experience them myself, and I don't have that lifetime of firsthand kind of embodied knowledge. Right. And so most of what I do have is what I am able to like sure. read and understand those other ways. Well, I think it's important to remember that everybody's experience is so different with diabetes. Right. Um, you know, you could have two T1D people who have, you know, had diabetes the same amount of time, had similar like usages of pumps and needles and different things, and they can have wildly different um, experiences. So it's important to remember that uh, when we're talking about it. And, you know, everyone's experience isn't the same, um, but it is fun to relate to people because there's a lot of things that are very similar that you don't as a kid, I didn't really have friends with diabetes. I didn't know a lot right. of people with diabetes. Um, and now with the internet and, you know, Instagram groups and different uh, groups of people who meet over online and stuff, you know, there's a lot more connection um, with people's experiences. So that's really cool um, and a new thing even for me. So, yeah, I mean, when you were diagnosed and those first few years thereafter it was basically diabetic camp like was the only place that you had <laughs> I think there was one other right? I think there was one other girl um our age that had had diabetes but mm -hmm. we weren't friends so we kind of knew oh she's the other diabetic girl and I did interesting we did know each other um a little bit but mm -hmm. you know we weren't hanging out all the time and you know yeah, I think different people have different experiences with that, but for sure. So, uh, so we will start by talking through a little bit about diabetes. Try and uh, then talk through a little bit about the uh, different diagnoses, so or different types, different forms, different whatever, um, and some of the kind of things directly related there, so that as we are talking through with guests and with each other moving forward in these episodes. Hopefully there will be a little bit more foundation of the way that we're talking through some of these like uh, little differences or as we reference something that's like a uh, uh, jargony specific kind of experience <laughs> to diabetes. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll have a little bit of grounding here. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I'm thinking back to our last episode and you know, Dr. Walker was was talking about some of the really complex social dynamics of defining differences among and within groups of people with diabetes, um, type 1, type 2, and some of how that gets really messy and complicated, right? Um, but part of, part of the way that we can actually start to unpack that is if we are understanding what those words are referring to and how they're representing people's experiences. So, uh, diabetes is actually shorthand. So the actual, uh, like clinical diagnosis term is diabetes mellitus. And, uh, there are a number of types of diabetes mellitus that are, uh, common. And then, uh, quite a few that are much less common diagnoses sure. mm -hmm. um, that we'll at least reference and talk through a little bit. Um, but one of the things that I think is interesting is where these, uh, like what these words actually mean. <laughs> uh, Steve told me this and I was like, what? 
Yes. So diabetes mellitus actually means honey siphon. So weird. Um, but cool. Yeah. You explained it to me. And there's a long history uh, uh, behind the dynamics of how these names have changed over time. And so we can uh, we will have an episode related <laughs> to the history of diabetes because I think it's fascinating and there's a lot to unpack <laughs> there. But uh, the reason that this term uh, meaning siphon is part of the definition is because of as as those who have been diagnosed um, can kind of relate <laughs> there. One of the uh, kind of telltale signs is the way that people are uh, have an insatiable thirst and are constantly urinating. Yeah. And so that flow of water through the body, that's where that like it's insane. representation I mean, siphon <laughs> comes from. I That's one of the first things my mom noticed. Uh, obviously, I had lost a lot of weight. I was nine and like gotten really thin. Um, but basically, just everything going through me, I would take a drink of something um, and have to pee immediately. And she was noticing I was in the bathroom all the time and not just like little amounts. It was like a lot every time. And she clearly noticed um, <laughs> we took a trip to California. And when you're on a trip, you know, you get Sprite with your Happy Meal or like things like that. Or you eat a treat or different things. And it was like instant like I took a drink and I was like I've got to be we knew with my family always jokes about knowing where all the bathrooms were <laughs> on our vacation before I was diagnosed because it was just constant you know I was nine years old and wetting the bed which is super embarrassing you know um and so yeah <laughs> yeah and at the time it's not like you knew why that was the case and no. that your body like it's not like you can help that obviously no. yeah and so um, so that's where that siphon side of this definition comes from. Um, uh, honey being the other operative term there, <laughs> referring to sweetness. Um, and we'll talk a lot about kind of sugar, blood sugar, that kind of language. Uh, but one of the reasons why honey was part of this like uh, diagnosis language is because of the process by which Physicians and or people who are working in that kind of field, studying people and bodies, physiologies, uh, the actual practices that they used in doing that. Because, it's nuts. Yeah, because they, I mean, the whole idea was to use all of your senses to get a sense of what was going on. Mm -hmm. Right. And so an, a, a key aspect of this was actually tasting patients' urine. Oh, and there, there is an identifiably sweeter, uh, like uh, attribute. I don't know to <laughs> to urine of people with high blood glucose. And obviously, they didn't know that that was the thing at sure. the time. But um, honey siphon because it is siphoning those fluids through, and it's very sweet. Right. So um, there, there are uh, long histories. We're talking thousands of years. Um, in some cases, uh, and very well documented for many hundreds. And so we'll come back to that conversation in another episode. For right now, I think it's worth then talking through, okay, so um, what is identifiable as diabetes mellitus, regardless of the type mm -hmm. um, that is usually characterized 
by high, and I say abnormally is the language that's usually in medical textbooks. So mm. abnormally high blood glucose levels. Sure. Regardless of the type. That's the kind of definition marker that's right. that gathers all of these very different mm-hmm. kinds of embodied experiences under one. Uh, yeah. Basically, definition. there's not enough insulin to combat those high blood triggers. Yeah. And and in some other cases, some other really complex things going on in the body that sure. makes that mm-hmm. happen as well. So um, so let's start with type one yep. diabetes, because that's uh, obviously your personal experience <laughs> and much of my research and personal experience as well. So uh, since you have lived with this forever, right? <laughs> what is what is type one? It's funny because I have to like sit back and like type one, obviously, you know, you don't define it like as a definition when you tell people. Usually some pe- people have a context for what diabetes is. We've talked a lot about how that can be varied in accuracy. But um, uh, basically it's an auto- autoimmune disorder in which your body does not create enough insulin for your body or no insulin at all, which is type one. Um, so there's varying amounts of that, uh, where we can kind of talk about, you know, one and a half at gestational, there's different forms of that, but my pancreas does not create the insulin, um, that my body needs to survive. Yeah. Um, and so that's the shorthand, right? The (laughs) pancreas does not create insulin anymore, period. Um, the how and why that happens is complicated and interesting. Yep. And some parts of that are still a big question mark. But the key is that your immune system, like the T cells, the things that are actively combating things that shouldn't be in your body, see the beta cells in your pancreas that create insulin and kill them. Yep. Kill them off. Um, how that triggers and why uh, has been a major focus of researchers for many, many decades. And there are ways that the people are getting closer to kind of getting a better handle on that. But still, frankly, we don't really know. It's really crazy. There are a lot of intersecting (laughs) like factors in triggering that response. And Um, probably more than one factor, which is probably why it's so hard to really nail down the cause because there probably are, you know, many many different causes in different ways. And so you know, one reason might not solve all the reasons why. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, with uh, when we're talking about type 1 and the complete lack of production mm-hmm. of insulin, eventually, uh, sure. because it's a process and it kills them off. And so there, uh, there is a sh- period, usually shortish, mm-hmm. where the amount of insulin being produced varies. It's funny when I was first diagnosed, I don't know if they still do this. They call it the honeymoon period. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember thinking that, that was so funny, but it was true. I was going low a lot and they were kind of explaining like your body still might be creating some insulin. And so, you know, there's periods of time when you, you will be going low a lot and that's really hard and complicated. And I think, you know, insulin's a hormone. And so even mm-hmm. in my older age, you know, getting pregnant. There's so many varying things that affect that and going low. Um, 
speaking of going low <laughs> on that. So on that subject, and I think this is important to bring up here as well, because we have referenced already in previous episodes, um, going high and going low. Um, so let's talk through those just a little bit <laughs> and, and what they are, what that means, but then also what that is like yeah. in experience. It's funny. <laughs> I keep bringing up all these anecdotes, but my parents, I just remember as a kid, my parents were always like, are you high? Are you high? And like, <laughs> as a teenager, that's kind of hilarious to be out in public and have your mom berating you. Like, are you high? <laughs> like, Melissa, are you high? Because when I have high blood sugar, um, that means there's not enough insulin in your body to, you know, combat the blood sugar level. And so you have high blood sugars. Um, there are different side effects of high and low blood sugars mm -hmm. and high blood sugars for me, often I am grumpy and, you know, I get extra, <laughs> I'm already very, um, a type kind of stubborn. And so <laughs> <Nuh -uh. laughs> those get <laughs> stop those, you know, accentuate. And I, you, you know, think about teenage kids and then a teenage kid who has high blood sugar, who is, you know, having the effects of that. Um, anyway, so high blood sugar yep. does not feel good. I mean, <laughs> I remember one time in college, I my insulin pump got wasn't in right at the tube had bent or something. And I remember being in class and just starting to feel sick and like have a big headache I tested and it was like above 600 on my meter. It was horrible. I remember going home and just laying on the couch and just, I, I think I, did I call you or did I call my dad? I don't remember who I called, but I, I think it was my dad. And I was like, I feel like I'm dying. Like, I feel like I just want to die. <laughs> and that yeah. seems dramatic, but it feels horrible. I don't think there's any way you can really describe to someone how it feels necessarily. Um, but you get really thirsty mm -hmm. and, you know, you have to pee a lot. There's, I mean, lots of different factors that go into it, but it feels terrible. And <laughs> um, high blood sugars, you know, people can have high blood sugars that don't quite feel that intensely. And I think the more you're used to those high blood sugars, the less you feel the effects of them immediately, which is why it's so scary because long term those can be very... Um, dangerous for your body and yeah. you know there's lots of different things we can talk about at some point but for sure um do you have anything to add about <laughs> sugars so not i mean not necessarily right um but the part that i think you were talking about that is important and interesting and that we'll have to get to in future episodes more as well is identifying that insulin is a hormone yeah because when we understand that insulin is a hormone and is no longer being produced by your body, um, the balance of what's happening inside your body among various hormones mm -hmm. is, uh, is a delicate thing. Yeah. And when hormones, when the balance of various hormones in your body change, it throws absolutely everything in your body out mm -hmm. out of whack which can happen right? day to day honestly yeah. which is i think why it's so hard to manage type 1 diabetes especially um i mean diabetes in general but it's your hormones are constantly changing 
Yeah, so <laughs> for sure. It's and, nuts. Um, and you talked through a couple of examples of how that uh, that is particularly uh, true. And uh, there are certain things that need to be navigated, mm-hmm. particularly by people who menstruate. Oh, and that's yeah. a key <laughs> that's a key aspect of this. You mentioned kind of pregnancy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people who menstruate, there are a, a number of cyclical changes in hormone balances in your body. Yeah. And that deeply affects how insulin can function in your body at the same time. Yeah. And so it, it that gets really it complicated. <laughs> It um, does. I feel like I've, you know, obviously been menstruating most of my life and still cannot figure out how to manage that. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, because it's partly, different every time. Exactly. <laughs> so um, and at the extreme level, high blood glucose can lead to what is referred to as DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis, um, where I mean, basically, the blood becomes uh, toxic because of the the amount of glucose there that can't be uh, used in your body's cells because there's no insulin to kind of be the key to those yep. cells and say, here, glucose, go here. Um, and so it gets very, very dangerous. And uh, oftentimes people who are in DKA uh, have to spend, in some cases, several days in the hospital recovering mm-hmm. because it can be really severe. Yeah. So um, on the flip side of that, <laughs> there are, we also refer to being low or lows, low blood sugar, low blood glucose. Yeah. So low blood sugars are really scary sometimes. Um, I When we first moved out to Indiana about a decade ago, which is nuts, <laughs> um, I was sort of diagnosed uh, with hypo unawareness hypo unawareness hypo unawareness um which basically i've just thought for a long time oh i don't you know i can go really low before i feel the effects of it um and so then there's this really quick all of a sudden i'm like far gone (laughs) and so i have these kind of scary lows in which i didn't necessarily feel it when i was you know in the 70s or 80s blood sugar um and so then i would get down to 30 or 40 before i all of a sudden was like crap i'm low um so i have lots of crazy low stories maybe we'll do an episode sometime about low stories because yikes um but basically your body just stops functioning in the way it's supposed to you know you feel confused i often describe it to steve as i can't connect in my brain from point A to point B. It's mm. like this weird like misfiring in your brain where you can't like <laughs> function. Um, but you, you, you know, shaky, um, heat, I start sweating, mm-hmm. um, get really confused. And it's weird and I feel like I try to act normal <laughs> and I try to act like I'm normal. Um, obviously people notice I'm not. <laughs> Um, anyway, what else? Oh man. Sometimes, you know, you can seize, you can pass out. Um, and so that's when it gets, uh, especially scary as someone who is a partner of someone with type one. Sure. Um, extreme lows 
uh, do happen, you know, regardless of of uh, the kind of general practices and well-being of people, lows and highs happen. And um, for a myriad amount of reasons, you know, tons. too much insulin, you've exercised and, you know, gone low. You didn't eat enough for what you bolused for. Um, Extra stress happened. Yeah, the, the I creep mean, up. Extra, like, and that's, again, we're talking about the balance of hormones in your body. And mm-hmm. so there are tons of things that can affect that. And um, the loss of consciousness and loss of use of your limbs and parts of your body are mm-hmm. are the most like immediately terrifying things yeah both for me like as someone with you and trying to help you through that and i'm sure also <laughs> the person actually going yeah i mean that. it's terrifying especially you know i've had several times in which i have lost consciousness and waking up from that is really terrifying because mm. You know, you obviously don't remember a certain amount of time and you're confused at where you are and what's happened and like your brain all of a sudden connects what's happening and it's overwhelming. <laughs> so right. um, obviously not everybody feels lows the same. There's different symptoms, mm-hmm. um, but basically too much, too much insulin for for the amount for of, the amount of uh, glucose, in, glucose your, in your system, in your system so. as well. Yeah. And so balancing those two things. Uh, we'll, we'll hear a lot of this kind of conversation and things related to, uh, what is essentially balancing the amount of carbohydrates that then break down into glucose in your blood, um, and the amount of insulin that are going into your body at any given time. And that balancing act is, uh, uh, a lifelong journey. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes, uh, you lose your balance for all kinds of reasons. So, um, So that uh, we have talked through a little bit about type one being then the Mm -hmm. uh, physiological process where your immune system kills off the cells that create insulin. It does not kill the pancreas. So your organ is still there and functioning. It serves many other purposes besides this. But those cells that produce insulin killed off. Yep. Uh, Type two diabetes then um, is another important conversation for us to have for one thing because type 2 diabetes is far more common of a diagnosis in the United States and the world. And there's just such a wide gap for you know where you are in that type 2 diagnosis. You know some people take insulin some people take medications there's just so many different treatments for type 2 diabetics um, and such a broader range of, uh, <laughs> you know, diagnosis in type two. Yes. Misdiagnosis and, in type two as well. And that as well. Um, which is, you know, scary too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned before that uh, every person's body, every body has a different physiology. And so everybody's experience with a similar diagnosis is different. Every single experience is different. Yep. Um, and that is obviously also true in the in the context of type two. Um, what's interesting uh, here too is uh, one of the key kind of identifiers is still uh, the level of or the amount of glucose in your blood. 
Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, that's that's usually the initial way of diagnosing diabetes, regardless of type. And so that's also true here. Um, in this case, however, we are not talking about the immune system killing off the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. Yeah. Right. Um, with type 2, there are, are two main processes going on. Um, and for some, uh, it's only one of these. For some, it's both. And uh, so that's why treatment gets so really complicated and messy and, and navigating that in the day-to-day. So with type 2 diabetes, we're not necessarily talking about an absence of insulin production, but we are talking about, for one thing, one aspect of this is a reduction yeah. in the amount of insulin being produced by the pancreas. Yeah. Not enough or... yeah you know, various amounts of decreased amounts for whatever reason. There's so many different reasons. Exactly. And so um, lower insulin production means there's less insulin and therefore more glucose in the blood. Yeah. And resistance to insulin is another factor as well. That's number two. Um, (laughs) I jumped the gun. You're good. (laughs) Jump that gun. So... (laughs) You know, your body resisting insulin, which is really frustrating, too, um, for a lot of people with type 2. Certainly so. And so on the one hand, um, individuals may be producing less. And so that has to be counteracted in some way Mm -hmm. to rebalance, as we're talking about this this balancing act that people are doing every day. Um, On the other side of that, we talked a little bit when we were talking about type 1 and highs and lows um, the role of insulin is more or less to act as a key um, to go to these cells in your body to kind of open up a door more or less and to tell that cell, here's this glucose, use it for the energy mm-hmm. to actually perform the function that you need to <laughs> in the body here. Um, and so for those who experience insulin resistance, um, the insulin can't connect with those cells as easily. And so uh, the glucose still isn't getting in the cells. And that's that's the key here, right? Um, And so with these two main factors going on uh, in, uh, you know, to whatever extent for people with type 2, treatment gets really complicated. So for some, um, there are Oral medications that can, for one thing, stimulate more production. So if that is, uh, it turns out, through all of the experimentation involved in figuring out <laughs> what will work, that's a conversation we're going to have to have Yikes. with folks. Yep. Um, is the kind of like, the way we have to kind of poke and prod our way around to figure out mm-hmm. what's going to work and figure what's not. Figure out what's going to work, what doesn't work, and it's mm. never ending. I mean, it's... You may, f- uh, that's, we've talked about the hormones and how they're always changing and always different um, as you grow and age. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it's a crazy ride. Yeah. And on the outset of a diagnosis with type two, there's no way to know for sure to what extent you are resistant and to what mm-hmm. extent you are producing less insulin. It is through these long processes of, messing around with different treatments that mm-hmm. you find out what's working and what's not, and then can figure out um, what will work best. And so, um, you know, so we, we do get into this territory now of 
the way that diagnosis, we need to understand what diagnosis even is. Yeah. Because we're talking about physicians reading people's bodies and and experiences, in theory, their experiences as well, and then trying to make connections and define it. Yeah. Right? Which is, you know, is can go very wrong. Very complicated. Misdiagnosis. I mean, Heather talked about her misdiagnosis for years or months. I don't know how long it was that they were. I can't were... remember the time frame, but, the, <laughs> but that's <laughs> the point. The point is that that doctor read her and her body and, importantly, her age and gender mm-hmm. and said, no, it's not any of these other things. It is this uh particular condition because this is how I understand you as a person, right? Yeah. I mean, and there are also people who aren't getting to the doctor because they don't have health care. <laughs> I mean, we, we've talked a li- we've mentioned a little bit about health care here in America and <laughs> the tragedy that it is. Um, so people, even if you are getting diagnosed or your doctor's saying, hey, look, this is what's going on. You know, I can't afford this, the I can't afford it. I can't afford to come to you every three months, which is a lot yeah. of times the requirement for like managing. Ugh, so expensive. Um, so <laughs> especially with when it's not as dire as, okay, you need insulin every day. With type two, it's more long-term. Like the effects of not taking care of yourself is a lot more long-term. Um, and so it's not immediate. Right. Um, and so, you know... <laughs> when you have to choose between feeding your kids or treating this thing that is sort of hovering around you, what do you pick? You know, you pick the most immediate need. And so there's a lot of people not getting the care they need or the help they need, which is really scary. Right. Cause you do not feel good. They, you can't possibly feel good when your body is not, you know, having the correct amounts of insulin. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it is often miserable, frankly. <laughs> yeah. um, untreated diabetes is a miserable experience, yeah. and um, that that misery looks different in different contexts. Uh, along with what you're getting at here, I think it's important to point out that diagnosis um, related to type two, uh, we we need to keep in the frame here is a, a class related. Mm-hmm. Uh, visuality, I guess you could say the 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 way that type two is understood socially, culturally yeah. in the lar- in the large scale. Mm-hmm. Um, type two is classed, right? It is understood to be mapped onto mm-hmm. the bodies of working class people. Sure, there are a lot of reasons for that that we can get to in future episodes as well. But it's also really important. To, to remember that it is also racialized. Oh, and yeah. um, again, the way that happens, the reasons for that, and the historical context wherein um, the bodies of black and brown people are stigmatized and then identified within this, the realm of the medical uh, is something we need to keep in mind as we're thinking through this. Yeah. Um, so, That's a whole episode in itself. One hundred several episodes. <laughs> several episodes. We'll come. Uh, so much to talk about. We're going to roll through these for sure. Um, but the key here is that these these are the two most common diagnoses of mm-hmm. diabetes. Um, type two, far and away, the 
largest proportionally of mm -hmm. people diagnosed with diabetes. Yep. Um, we're talking a tenfold difference between the number of diagnosis of type two uh, compared to those of type one. So, you know, where we're talking about, you know, somewhere in the range of three, a little bit more uh, million people in the U.S. diagnosed with type one, we're talking over 30 million people in the U.S. diagnosed with type two. Um, and so that scale is also important as we are understanding how these things exist, not only as embodied experiences for people and a diagnosis in the context of medicine, but these have a social life too. These live in society and they're defined yeah. in really complicated ways. Definitely. So um, along with those two main types, there are a number of uh, other forms of diabetes that, um, that in some cases are still pretty common and in other cases much less so but important to at least mention. Um, we can't go into the same amount of depth in this episode sure. for all of these, but it's important to point these out. Yeah. And the first one would be gestational diabetes. Yep. Right? Um, and in this case, we're talking about a diagnosis related to uh, high blood glucose levels. Uh, Either because of reduced, again, in a similar way that uh, this functions with type 2, either related to a reduction in the production of insulin or resistance by the cells of the body. In pregnant women. During pregnancy. Hence the name. Yep. <laughs> gestational. Okay. Um, and there, uh, there are a lot of things about gestational diabetes, too, that I think are really um, fascinating mm -hmm. in... The way that we understand what diabetes is and how how it uh, functions in people's bodies, yeah. Um, but also then the kind of cultural life of gestational diabetes, right? One of the things that is super common when when gestational diabetes is narrated by people is the process by which they were diagnosed. Oh my! Do you gosh. know what I'm referring to? I don't know. Oh, yeah. The drinking of the like sugar drink. Yes. <laughs> I didn't have to do that when I was pregnant because clearly I'm already diabetic. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you hear people talking about those orange sugar drinks that you have to drink and sit around and wait. And it's crazy. It's really yeah. nuts. And so, you know, they essentially have people drink a syrup. <laughs> right? It's a yeah. uh, hyper, hyper uh, sugared drink. And then see and how then, your body processes it, basically. Yeah. And so then they, they do a urinalysis thereafter. What's crazy is how late they do it in pregnancy to me. I mean, I don't know if that's common everywhere, if there's different... I don't know, but it's... I mean, it's pretty late in pregnant. I mean, not late, but it's not right at the beginning. And I don't know if it's sure. because your body doesn't necessarily... I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But what, you know... What is insulin again? It's a hormone. <laughs> and so as hormones change throughout pregnancy, the, and yeah. to your point there, this can be triggered at any point yeah. during pregnancy. And uh, for many, after the baby is born um, or after they are no longer pregnant, those processes rebalance and... 
they no longer need to keep an eye on blood sugars. Blood yeah, glucose, I mean, there's right? there's an amount of, you know, keeping an eye on you while after you've delivered your baby sure, to certainly. see. I mean, a lot of people then are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes afterwards. Um, it just kind of depends obviously yeah. on you and your hormones and your particular situation but exactly and so for some uh it does rebalance for mm -hmm. others it doesn't yeah. and so that can be a triggering episode mm -hmm. uh that then becomes a long-term chronic illness rather than the kind of bounded chronic mm -hmm. illness within the context of pregnancy uh and so that gets us into the realm of uh, a number of other types of diagnosis, including LADA or LADA, the, uh, let's see, latent autoimmune diabetes in adults. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, yeah. and is often referred to as type one and a half. Yeah. Right. And, um, we will do an episode on type one and a half LADA, <laughs> LADA, however folks, uh, identify that for themselves. But the, uh, the key here is that we are talking for most people, eventually the, uh, eventually for most, and that's where this gets a little bit different. Uh, eventually the complete, uh, halt of production of insulin, much like people with type one, like a slower process, but a much slower process. And so it's not the same kind of autoimmune, uh, process that mm -hmm. happens with type one that's triggered there. Um, but in the end, results in similar experiences and the, ne the necessity of balancing insulin with injections and that kind of thing. So um, the other very common diagnosis here that is also um, uh, in the large context, fairly recent, modern, uh, a fairly recent diagnosis is pre-diabetes. Mm. Um, and... Because this functions as a diagnosis, um, it is then something to be treated. And so there's a, there's some conversation to be had around uh, where that line is drawn and how um, and how and when people are being tested of yeah. where, whether they may or may not be pre-diabetic as the diagnosis is identified. But it's basically a marker of uh, you know, your insulin production or resistance is not to the kind of level that would qualify as type two, but you may or may not, your body may or may not be headed in that direction. Yeah. Right. Um, and so for some, this diagnosis is very helpful in that it helps them again, try and rebalance things so that their body actually feels like they can embody it, sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, for some, this also functions as a little bit of a scare tactic, and that's where this gets really messy um, and the way it's racialized and classed and things like that. So um, there are a number of other um, forms of diabetes, type 3C, which we'll have to come back to in future episodes, monogenic diabetes. Um, there are other forms that are related to other diseases and uh, and chemical experiences in the mm -hmm. body. So cystic fibrosis related diabetes, um, a drug or chemical induced diabetes for some in, uh, that are uh, either from recreational use 
or pharmaceutical use for treating various um, right. conditions. That kind of thing can happen. Um, and then also a what's re- what is referred to as MODI, which is an interesting designation, but maturity onset diabetes of the young. Super weird name, but we'll have to unpack that in a future episode. Um, uh, again, these are these are important diagnoses to keep in the frame here, and we'll have to do individual episodes to talk through these in more depth. Okay, so before we wrap up, uh, we're going to talk about a little bit about treatments and some of the terminology and language uh, around those treatments. I think most of them are probably pretty self-explanatory, but um, there is some lingo that goes into it that may, I'm, you'd probably be fine not knowing what it is. You could probably put the pieces together, but it's interesting to kind of connect the dots on some of the things we're talking about. Yeah. And uh, in the context of treatment for diabetes, uh, the long history of treatment prior to the last hundred years and since really still, but mm-hmm. um, certainly for the thousands of years prior to 100 years ago <laughs> when the first uh, shot of insulin was sure. administered to a patient, um, the primary means by which people could in any way treat diabetes regardless of type and physiological experience was through diet changes yeah, um, and Importantly, abstaining. So like abstention in general from certain foods is a long term kind of. Yeah. Um, And in some cases from like all food, which is so horrifying. We'll talk about. (laughs) Yeah, we'll we'll have to have an episode about kind of life with diabetes prior to 1920 and 1921 when pharmaceutical insulin was introduced Um, because it's misery. I mean, we're talking about it's pretty much a death sentence. Certainly so. Um. Um, and so that gets us into the realm of, okay, so what are the primary forms of treatment then today? Um, insulin, obviously. <laughs> number one, insulin. Um, insulin injection in one form or another into the body uh, used as a means of introducing that hormone yeah. into the system, either where it's not in any level or uh, where there's not enough of it or there's a lot of resistance in the body. So if there's more insulin in there and the body is resistant to it, then in theory, the excess of insulin can at least get some of that sugar through, right? So there's it that gets kind of messy, but insulin <laughs> injection. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's shots um, where you have a vial of insulin um, and you drop a needle and inject it into your body. This is how I started out uh, when I was nine years old. Uh, Insulin pumps were obviously around. Um, When I was young, they weren't giving them to children at that point. Certainly Um, There was a lot of scare of like (laughs) delivering insulin without knowing. Anyway, so when I was diagnosed, I don't even think I knew about insulin pumps. I mean, when you're a kid... They were not circulating widely at that point. No. So, I mean, I basically gave myself shots. Um, There's long-term insulin short-term insulin basically uh enters your body and triggers you know different amounts of time (laughs) so i mean i was basically giving myself a shot in the morning and then like insulin when i ate food um so that was kind is kind of one way 
there's insulin pens, which came into my life in my teenage years, which right. were really big for me because I was always really embarrassed about like drawing, like going out to eat. There's all these little things that you don't realize um, until you have it, you know, like drawing up insulin in a needle and there's so much like stigma into needles mm -hmm. and drug use and totally. stuff. And so um, insulin pens were a lot more hideable, <laughs> which as a teenager, I liked, I liked to not feel different. Um, right. and so that was pretty big for me. Um, obviously insulin pumps are more so that way because you just click some buttons. You're not even, you know, drawing up insulin, but insulin pens basically have the insulin vial inside of them. And so you just switch out the needle tip and drop the certain amount of insulin and, um, yep. and inject, inject. It right there from the, <laughs> yep, from the pen. Um, insulin pumps, obviously, um, you drop the insulin into the insulin pump, insert it, a tube into your body that stays there for several days. Um, some longer, I guess it depends on the pump that you have. Um, but then can deliver you insulin pretty much all day long, which, you know, slowly during the day you can kind of adjust when you need more or less insulin, which is a really cool technology. Yeah. And so uh, insulin pumps then with those little micro doses throughout the day, take the place of the long acting or the slow release mm -hmm. insulins that uh, have been a staple in treatment uh, for yeah, somewhere in the range of 20 years, um, uh, pushing 30 years as well. Um, uh, this whole setup of multiple daily injections as a means of kind of maintaining levels or balancing, um, was conceptualized many decades prior to the advent of these devices. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, that's a whole conversation. We need to talk about Richard Bernstein because uh, there's a lot of really interesting and complicated things going on in relation to him and his work. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but he kind of pioneered that model that is now kind of standard within insulin pump use. Sure. So um, so for people with type 1 diabetes, that's it. Insulin's the only way to, to, to do that. You can't stimulate the cells that have died. Yeah. And so um, insulin's it. Injection is the only way to do it. For people with type 2, um, there are some oral medications that can do that stimulating work, either stimulating the pancreas to produce more or stimulating the body's cells to accept the insulin that can open the door for the glucose to get in there. Um, and there are a ton, <laughs> yeah. a ton of oral medications yeah. for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. And uh, it has it has flooded the market in a way that has, uh, frankly, preyed on a lot of vulnerable people as well. Um, and so that's a complicated mess as well. And But navigating those oral meds is tricky, like we were talking about. It's, mm -hmm. it's a process of trial and error. Yep. As with a lot of, you know, medications mm -hmm. on the market today, what's going to work for you, what medications are going to work best. Um, so it gets really complicated and difficult to kind of hone in on 
what's going to work for your body. And it's not always going to be the same. It's ever changing. And a lot of people have to use oral medication and insulin, um, which is even more complicated and crazy um, to try and navigate. So, yeah. And so like the amounts of insulin to inject and when and how Mm -hmm. that's balancing with these stimulating oral meds and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it gets very, very complicated. And I think this is what uh, Dr. Walker was also referring to a little Mm -hmm. bit in that conversation from the last episode, Um, because she was saying for folks with type one, it's insulin and there is a complicated mess involved in trying to figure out the balance and like how that how changes much insulin day to day. for what you're eating and it's different for everybody there's and not exercise like and stress and yeah. when it's a day <laughs> that you are you know at work for x number of hours versus a different number of hours in a different way all of these and if you're standing versus yeah. sitting and if you're <laughs> yeah it's so many things but if you're it's sad just, that day <laughs> it's just the balance of insulin and food yep in in that process for folks with type 2 who are bringing in all of these various medications that are doing different things to their hormone systems, um, their endocrine systems in their body. It, it gets really difficult and it's a, it's a complex web to kind of navigate. So, um, so, uh, in order to know though, what to inject and when and how much and all of that, uh, it has also become standard practice for people with diabetes now, basically whatever type, um, to be testing their blood glucose levels regularly. Yep. For most, that means several times a day. For some people, that will mean once or twice a day. Um, but daily, um, we are talking about somewhere in the range of close to 90% of people with um, a diabetes diagnosis test with a blood glucose meter every day. Yep. And this is in the context of the United States. We got to keep that in the frame too. Yeah. Um, um, but that's important because that old finger prick <laughs> is really widely understood as a part of diabetes and a part of living with and treating um, diabetes. And um So what we're talking about is a a lanceting device that pokes the finger and a little bit of blood can come out. Okay. And (laughs) uh, spray in the face or spray in the (laughs) face. Or if you happen to be sitting to, if you're wearing a white shirt that day, it will spray on that white shirt. Right. Um, It's funny when I, so (laughs) when I was, what grade was this? Sixth grade, I think. Um, I remember a recess in which I was trying to convince all my friends to test their blood to know what it was like. And some of them were really like intrigued by doing it. And one of my friends was like sobbing. She was so afraid of it. And I was like, come on. And I think it was my way of like being like, this is what I deal with every day. Like, and trying to show them like, yeah, it sucks. But like, think about doing it every day, like five plus times, you know, or, you know, you test your blood and you forget to calibrate your pump and you have to test again, you know? So I I don't know why that memory popped into my head, but I hope some of my friends are listening and remember that. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Me trying to test their blood at school. <laughs> yes. But this is important because if you don't know where your body is in a particular moment, then eating more carbs can 
skyrocket where what is already an elevated blood glucose mm-hmm. level and injecting insulin for food when one is already quite low mm-hmm. can drop people dramatically. So yeah. having a sense of where you are is invaluable. It is really interesting too. Um, I mean, after years of having diabetes, you kind of know how you feel in certain situations, but there is, there are times when I feel super low and then I test and I'm not. And so it's like, right. Wow. This is weird. Cause I thought I was low. And if you just treat that without knowing, um, that can be really dangerous too. Um, <laughs> yeah. So along with that, you know, if you have something on your hands, like you were touching all right. baking and have sugar all over your hands and you test like that affects your blood sugar that comes up on the meter. So, you know, having clean hands and, you know, do you right. wash your hands every time you test your blood? I mean, realistically, no. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, come on. <laughs> Let me go wash my hands when I'm in the like, I just need to test, you know, so. Right. It's kind of interesting the things that you deal with for sure with blood testing, but and so you know this uh, the advent of finger prick blood glucose testing has been massive in being able to understand what's happening in people's bodies in particular moments, but that's what it is. Yep. It's a snapshot in a particular moment, and this is where we get into the into the realm of continuous glucose monitors or CGMs. So you may hear that that term thrown around a CGM or a sensor. Um, some people may just call it a Dexcom because that's <laughs> the most widely Common. circulating one. Uh, and a continuous glucose monitor is intended to try and take these little snapshots every few minutes and then map them out for people. And so mm-hmm. then we're talking about creating trajectories rising, falling, whatever it may be, so that in theory, people can make treatment decisions about what is happening and not just based on this one little snapshot that the finger prick is. Yeah. Um, And I think as we talked about in the first episode, um, the CGM has been possibly even more significant to the changes in how your treatment functions. Oh, I mean, the CGM was life changing for me, especially when you can see where you're, you know, you can see where your blood sugar is going and kind of try and counteract it. Before that, if you're testing your blood, let's say five times a day, you know, you test every time you eat and then in between sometimes two hours after your meals to kind of get a base of what your numbers are. So you're, you have five blood sugars that you know during the day what's happening in between that right you know you could have a total spike and then come down and not know that your blood sugars are spiking because if you're testing and then sleeping all night you don't know that you had this intense spike and that your body kind of corrected it after a while but um so that's a really interesting i mean it's been life-changing for me for sure yeah um and my ability to keep my blood sugars more level um, and A1C being lower. So, yep. Um, and so that's the, that's the short version of, uh, the introduction to diabetes and it's slash their treatments. Um, there are a number of different experiences Mm -hmm. related to diabetes and that's the key. Um, 
And there are a number of treatments that get at those different experiences. Yeah. I mean, things we haven't even talked about, you know, inhalable insulin is kind Certainly. of a newer thing on the market. Or you were talking about air shots. Air shots. I didn't even know about. <laughs> yeah. And so it uses uh, intense puffs of air to inject the insulin through the skin without the use of a needle. So for people who have serious needle uh, phobias. fear, yeah, phobias mm -hmm. around the use of needles and syringes, uh, it actually makes it possible to inject their insulin that they can't get otherwise. So yeah, there are a number of these things and CG, a number of CGMs that don't have to be calibrated and there's all kinds of fancy things you can tap with your phone and then it gives you a reading from there. It's really uh, fascinating and remarkable and overwhelming mm -hmm. amount of things going on here that uh, I think as we go in future episodes, we can kind of thicken out this Yeah, I primer. mean, access to these things obviously is the biggest number one thing to talk about, I think, because, you know, this life-changing thing is only available through access to these things, and they are not cheap, you know? They're right. not accessible to everybody, which, you know, is really unfair. <laughs> and know? to be frank... Uh, these things are very expensive. The real horror is that a month's worth of insulin is yeah. almost as expensive as many of these devices. And so the inaccessibility of the actual life-saving pharmaceutical is, I think, the key to all of that. Because the yeah. insulin pump is useless if there's no <laughs> insulin. Yeah. And if you know where your blood glucose is in a given moment, but you don't have insulin to actually inject to counteract some of that, then it's also useless, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, we will have serious conversations about the lack of access. All right, so that wraps up episode three, our diabetes primer. Uh, we also talked about our everything uh, seasoning Pumpkin, pumpkin bread. bread. Yeah, <laughs> I know. The name is kind of ridiculous. Okay, it's, it's, it's <laughs> We, we should have workshopped that a little bit. <laughs> anyway, thanks for being with us. Uh, follow us on Instagram and all where you get your podcasts. Yep. And we do have a new page uh, up on Facebook and... Uh, we exist on Twitter, technically, but uh, don't do much there. <laughs> so we're around. Steve's in charge of Twitter. Yeah, we're around. <laughs> so uh, come join us next week. We will have a special guest, and I'm really excited um, for this one. We're, uh, we're not going to tease it in the same way <laughs> that we have in the previous episodes, um, but it's going to be fantastic. We're excited to continue giving you more episodes every week. So subscribe and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review if you feel like. Ask us questions. If you have terms that you have questions about or things you want to hear more about, let us know. Um, if you'd like to join us on an episode, we'd love to hear from you in the future. Absolutely. And thank you all very much. Bye.